Hello, and welcome to the Learn to Mediate Online podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host, and I'm one of the leading experts in online mediation. I have personally been mediating online for over five years now, and I have my own fully online family law mediation and coaching practice. Two years ago, after so many of my colleagues reached out wanting to know how I was doing it, I created the Learn to Mediate Online training program. And to date, I have personally trained thousands of mediators in how to successfully conduct their mediations through an online platform. As a leading figure in the online mediation movement, I am privileged to be on the cutting edge of developments and advances in online practice, and this podcast has been created to share that information with you. So tune in each week to get the inside story on how to mediate online. I invite you to now listen to today's podcast. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host, and today my guest and I are going to be delving into what has truly become, I think, probably the hottest topic in mediation today. Uh, my guest today is Jeff Kitchaven. Uh, he recently wrote two articles talking about confidentiality and mediation, which have caused quite a stir in the world of mediation. And so I'm, I'm truly honored and, and so pleased that he agreed to join me here today because I don't think there's a mediator I've spoken to in the last couple of weeks when I've mentioned these articles who's, you know, I said this phrase to Jeff earlier, whose head hasn't exploded um, as a result of, of some of the thought-provoking um, you know, interesting ideas that Jeff has put in the article. So I'm very excited to have him here. Let me just give you a little bit of Jeff's very impressive background um, so that you you know who who is provoking these thoughts for you. Jeff is ranked in chambers for the United States 2020 as one of the country's top mediators. He's also who's who legal, which lists him as a global elite thought leader. And that's exactly what you're doing right now. You are leading some thoughts. Um, he's also, I mean, this sums it up. He's an honors graduate of Harvard Law School and a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of UC Berkeley. So we have a very educated and uh, leader in thought-provoking ideas um, joining us today. So Jeff Kitchaven, thank you so much for joining me. Susan, thank you. I'm just so proud to be here. You have a wonderful podcast. Everybody watches it. Everybody listens to it in the world of mediation and beyond. So uh, I'm very flattered that you would ask me to be your guest here today. Thank you. I also specifically want to mention on the Law 360 articles, my co-authors, Professor Teresa Frisbee and Tyler Codina of Loyola University Chicago Law School. And they, 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 deserve, <laughs> they deserve a lot of credit as well. Absolutely. And that that is the article that started it all. Um, the article is was for Law 360. I will have a link to the both of the articles we're going to mention in the show notes. And I highly encourage everyone to go read the articles. This is a, you know, 20 to 30 minute show. We will touch on these topics, but the articles are very well researched, very well written. Um, I highly encourage everyone to go read them. But the first one that really grabbed everybody's attention is what you say in online mediation may be discoverable. 
And out there, I can already hear all the people and all the heads exploding. <laughs> and that is the article that you did with Teresa Frisbee and Tyler Codina that came out in Law 360. Uh, what type of reaction did you find you got? Is, does it mirror what I have been hearing in the world of mediation, Jeff? Absolutely. A lot of people, Susan, had never thought about these issues before and the way that the question of applicable law may or may not change when it's harder to say where the mediation actually takes place. If everybody is sitting in your office in Illinois or my office here in Los Angeles where I live, then people would just presume that California law applies in my case or Illinois law, the Uniform Mediation Act would apply in your case. But as we conducted our research, we found that's really not something we can promise or guarantee. Yeah, well, and that really goes to the the heart of why I think this is uh, so uh, thought provoking for professionals, because the idea of mediation confidentiality or the theory of it anyway is, you know, sort of a guiding principle or a basic principle of mediation. It's often cited as one of the benefits to mediating, that you can go into a mediation proceeding, pretty much lay anything out there on the table with an understanding that that information is not going to be used or discoverable in a subsequent legal proceeding. But you're saying in these articles, and and I will say they're, as I said, they're very well-researched articles, that that, in fact, not only online, as you mentioned, but in person, may not be true. And and The first thing, Susan, is this whole idea that uh, confidentiality is necessary to effective mediation. It's an urban legend. There's no evidence to support that. And I'm making that as a factual statement. How can I make that as a factual statement? I'll tell you why. In the 2000s, around 2015, 16, 17, the California Law Revision Commission, at the request of the California legislature, researched a possible exception to our so-called absolute confidentiality rules in light of the California Supreme Court's decision in Cassell versus Superior Court. The mediation establishment said that Confidentiality is essential to effective mediation, like a mantra. And I challenged that because as I look around the country, I see a variety of states with a variety of different mediation confidentiality or privilege regimes. And in those places with lesser degrees of confidentiality, such as New York, nobody seems to care very much. A lot of mediation goes on in New York. Cases get settled. A lot of mediators practice in New York, and it just doesn't seem to make a difference. And so I challenged the mediation establishment, and I said, where's the evidence? We have a general rule of law, and it's important to the rule of law that courts be able to consider all relevant evidence in order to make correct decisions and give us confidence in the administration of justice. And by creating an exception to the concept that all relevant evidence is admissible, you're actually depriving courts to some degree of the ability to administer true justice. So I challenged the mediation establishment and I said, where's the evidence? You want to hamper the court's ability to administer justice? Where's the evidence that it's necessary to exclude this evidence in order to have effective mediation? 
leaving to one side the question of whether one is more important than the other. And in over two and a half years, Susan, despite every opportunity to do so, and certainly motivation to do so, do you know how much evidence the mediation establishment actually provided to support their mantra? I'm going to guess not much. Well, you're incorrect, because the true answer is zero. So it was either a lack. Well, I, I think the, actually, as I think about what you just said, it is in our industry a knee jerk reaction that the confidentiality is inherently important to the process. So I think right there, you've you've already just challenged the status quo um, with factual um, underpinnings as to the fact as to whether or not that confidentiality is necessary to resolving matters in mediation. And I think maybe I have a lot of listeners who are not attorneys, who are not attorney mediators. So maybe just if you could give a little understanding of, because I think this is where many even practitioners fall down in their understanding of what the confidentiality in mediation, what we're talking about, uh, because you and I talked about this. It's not it's a it's a legal concept about an exclusion under our evidentiary codes in most cases. So maybe a little understanding of that, I think, would help some of the non-attorney mediators who are listening. Sure. Let's talk about what these statutes and rules of court actually do. They're rules of evidence. So what that means is they limit the extent to which evidence of what takes place in mediation can be introduced in a later judicial proceeding, a trial or a deposition, something of that nature. In some states, it's set up as a privilege. In Illinois, it's a privilege under the Uniform Mediation Act. In California, it's set up as a confidentiality statute. It's not a privilege. It's not in the chapter of the Evidence Code on Privilege. It's in the same chapter of the Evidence Code as, for example, excluding evidence of subsequent remedial acts. Now, why does this make a difference? It makes an analytic difference because privileges, such as the one in the Uniform Mediation Act, can be waived by conduct, can be waived impliedly by the way people behave, and can be waived by certain kinds of disclosures people make outside the courtroom. The confidentiality statute in California cannot be waived by those kinds of conduct. So it's important analytically to decide in terms of the statute you're applying. Is it a privilege statute? Is it a confidentiality statute? Is it something else entirely? In New York, they operate with an analog of Federal Rule of Evidence 408, and that provides only very minimal protection for any settlement negotiation, whether it's in mediation or outside of mediation. And Rule 408 and the New York Rule provides only that evidence of offers and demands made cannot be introduced to prove the weakness or strength of claims or defenses in the lawsuit that's in the claim that's being negotiated. And that's almost no confidentiality at all. Right. And yet in New York, people seem to do just fine. If you take a look at the number of volunteer mediators on the court panels in the Southern District, the Eastern District of New York, there's hundreds. If you take a look at advertising for commercial providers in New York City and other places in New York, there's lots and lots of people 
who are apparently making a living as mediators, or at least think it's possible to. So the question of why this kind of statutory confidentiality or privilege is necessary to effective mediation is a question to which I do not know the answer. Right. Well, and and I think you, that that's a wonderful summary, and actually better than I ever could have have pulled that together. Um, but what it really does for for me, and I think for listeners, is points out the problem that you run into when you are mediating, and it could be in person, but it's much more likely to happen online, where participants may be in multiple jurisdictions. Your, you know, your summary of all the different laws and codes that may apply to mediation and confidentiality around what happens in mediation, it varies state by state. And when your participants might be in all those different states, you run into the issue of what state's laws apply. Yes, and that's what initially set me on this inquiry. I haven't used a written confidentiality agreement for 15 years, and I stopped using them because I realized that so many mediators put liability waivers into their confidentiality agreements, which I find to be immoral and completely inappropriate. But in any case, we can discuss that more in a minute if you wish. But in any case, I was just thinking about Well, what happens? Uh, I'm here in California. The other participants in an upcoming mediation were all in different states. No two people were in the same state. And I asked myself, well, what state's law applies to this mediation by operation of law? And I started doing some research, and I've been a full-time mediator for almost 25 years now, so my legal research skills are a little rusty. And that's doesn't sound I, like it. <laughs> well, it's Tyler Codina is the man who deserves the credit for that. He's a rising second-year law student at Loyola University Chicago Law School. And my friend Teresa Frisbee and Tyler, really, really Tyler deserves most of the credit for the outstanding legal research. And we came across all this conflicts of law research. What happens is, how is mediation confidentiality tested? how do we test the promise that you might make in an Illinois mediation that this mediation is confidential, nothing here can ever be introduced in evidence, et cetera? Well, it'll be tested when, if and when, somebody subpoenas one of those mediation participants to testify about what happened in your Illinois mediation because what happened in your Illinois mediation becomes relevant to some issue in a later lawsuit. Now, that later lawsuit may arise in Illinois, but it may not arise in Illinois. It could arise in neighboring Wisconsin or Indiana. These states are very close to Illinois. So uh, Tyler found this fascinating case, 10th Circuit case called Larson versus Larson, where mediation took place with everyone physically in Colorado. And they signed a confidentiality agreement saying Colorado law applies to this mediation. Uh, We promise not to use evidence of what happened in this mediation ever, ever in evidence, period. And then there was a proceeding in Wyoming to enforce an oral settlement agreement, which had been reached at the mediation. And it was a dispute between siblings. One of the siblings tried to resist production of his PowerPoint, and two of his siblings tried to compel production of his PowerPoint in the federal district court in Wyoming. 
And Wyoming has laws which are much less protect protective of mediation confidentiality. The district court in Wyoming considered the reliance interest that everyone had in Colorado law and the contract that people had signed swearing confidentiality. And the district court in Colorado didn't care. They ordered production of uh, Charles Larson's PowerPoint and the 10th Circuit affirmed. And the reason is this fundamental rule of evidence, all relevant evidence is admissible. And the reason we have that rule of law is because we want courts to make correct decisions in the cases before them. And the Wyoming courts found that Wyoming public policy was more important than the contract and Colorado public policy and ordered production of Charles Larson's PowerPoint. And as Teresa, Tyler, and I said in the article, this may not concern you too much because you may not be that worried about something in your Illinois mediation becoming relevant to a later case in Wyoming. It's a right. sparsely populated state. It doesn't have the volume of litigation in some other states. But then when we started to look into New York law, and we realized that there are New York cases, recent cases, where New York courts disregard the more protective privilege laws of other states and compel people to produce evidence and documents and testimony because New York public policy is only minimally protective of settlement communications and certain other things. That's when we thought we really were onto something because at least in the commercial world, the chance that what happens in your mediation could become relevant to a later proceeding in New York is much greater and something to take seriously. Oh, absolutely. There, you, you say, let's take our saga to the big apple <laughs> right. in, in the article. And I, I underline that because that is where you start. I mean, I can imagine mediators listening to this right now, all sitting up and taking notice, especially when you said earlier, New York's, uh, you know, New, York, New York's laws have a very low level of um, mediation confidentiality. It was really, um, I think you described it as um, only offers. Um, it's the Rule 408 standard, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I wish I could cite the Rule 408 standard <laughs> as easily as you do. <laughs> so that in and of itself is impressive. Well, Susan, as, as my young adult children sometimes say, Dad, you spend all your time thinking about this? Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's fascinating. And I think that this is a question, you know, when I, as I do all my trainings around the country, around the world, this is a question that has come up. And I've had several people say, well, you don't need to worry about this because if you make a choice of laws in your agreement, this agreement is going to be governed by the laws of the state as you had in Colorado. Um, as you had in Larson. That's exactly uh, what happened in Larson. Exactly. And then that here we go with that exploding heads again, right? Everybody's so, saying, what do you mean the choice of law didn't, didn't control? And you're saying the court said in Wyoming that public policy trumped the contractual provision. Well, that's right. Uh, for example, uh, some states have an accountant-client privilege. Yes. I believe Arizona does. I believe Texas does. Uh, California does not. I'm not sure about Illinois. But if I were to go into my accountant and say, oh, by the way, in your engagement letter, would you please put a provision that the Arizona or Texas accountant client privilege applies to our, uh, our discussions with each other in preparation of my tax returns? 
the accountant, California accountant might or might not do it, but I don't think that would make any difference. I don't think a California court or any other court would say that my accountant client relationship in California it should be governed by Arizona law. That's against California public policy and the public policy of many other states and disregard it. But even where it makes more sense, for example, the New York case we cited in the article, uh, people of New York versus PricewaterhouseCoopers involved Exxon's relationship with its accountant, PricewaterhouseCoopers, which largely took place in Texas, which the court noted has an accountant client privilege. Well, the attorney general, the former attorney general of New York subpoenaed PricewaterhouseCoopers in connection with its climate change lawsuit against Exxon and wanted production of documents and testimony that went forth between them. And although it would seem natural, both companies were headquartered, uh, the relationship took place in Texas, the communications took place in Texas, there was undoubtedly reliance on the Texas accountant client privilege, the New York courts didn't care. They wanted that evidence before them, and they compelled PricewaterhouseCoopers to produce documents and testimony regarding its relationship with Exxon. So you can put it in a contract all you want, and a court might honor it, but you're making a promise. And if some court in New York or Wyoming or any place else breaks your promise for you, there are consequences. If you have induced a level of candor, which otherwise would not have uh, happened, and then that can excessive candor later turns out to haunt the party who made those disclosures, then there are potential claims against you. Negligent misrepresentation, breach of contract. And the question is, do you want to be the mediator who someday is sitting there in a courtroom as the jury chews over your fate? Yes, your malpractice policy may provide you with defense, but as the British saying goes, it's no great honor to be acquitted of murder, and it will be no great honor for any mediator to be on the hook. Now, will it eventually happen? Given enough time and enough cases, sooner or later, somebody will be sufficiently disappointed and angered by what happens. Given enough time, it'll happen. Well, especially, uh, you know, in light of at least what I see as a surge of litigation moving over to mediation as we go through quarantine, COVID, the pandemic, um, we're seeing a great deal more mediation just in general, but certainly online mediation where we have this issue of people participating um, all around the country or around the world. Um, and that led to, you know, your second article, I'm just holding it up now. This was an article that will also be linked in the show notes. Um, this is an article just by you that was in the Law 360, Mediator Confidentiality Promises Carry Serious Risks. And you mentioned earlier, you for about 15 years have not had a confidentiality clause or promise agreement in your, your um, agreement to mediate. There is um, no agreement to mediate. Oh, you don't do a medi an agreement to mediate... No. At all? No, I just sent out a letter confirming. Uh, now, of course, the mediations are all on Zoom, but right. I used to confirm the date, time, and place of the mediation, ask people to have their briefs or memoranda to me by a certain date. 
very generally invoices attached and my thanks and appreciation because uh, Susan, I tell you, every time somebody selects me as a mediator, I'm so grateful and so appreciative. Nobody has a contract with me or any mediator. There's a lot of very fine mediators out there and uh, I'm just so appreciative every time somebody hires me. Well, and it, I mean, it's a it's a great responsibility, a wonderful honor to to be the chosen neutral to help people through their process. I think not having an agreement to mediate, even beyond not having an, a confidentiality agreement, will be a surprise to some practitioners. Um, and you know, I think for many of us, we have just. Yeah, I remember going over the agreement, uh, the confidentiality agreement when I took my mediation training course, the original 40 hour that I took oh so many years ago. And I'm sure there are people who are listening now who are thinking, well, isn't it something that I have to have? So th there's a value here for what you're saying, not only do you not have to have it, but there are some serious and, and good reasons not to have uh, the confidentiality and perhaps an agreement to mediate with people. You are, as the mediator, making promises to people as well as having them make promises to you in that agreement. That's right. Sometimes, Susan, if you're in a state such as New York with only minimal confidentiality protections, and you put in there a statement like, nothing ever said or done in this mediation can be introduced in evidence, what you've essentially done is you have deprived people of contract-based defenses to the mediated settlement agreement, which the legislature thinks people ought to have. So fraud, duress, and mistake are the traditional contract-based defenses that uh, people have to the enforcement of, of any contract. And if you put language, extreme confidentiality statements into your confidentiality agreement, and what you're in essence saying is that, is that even though the legislature of this state believes that people should have certain defenses to the enforcement of contracts, this is what our legislatures have enacted. I, mediator, am conditioning my service as your mediator on your willingness to waive the contract-based defenses which the legislature believes that every person in this state should have. That's what you're doing. Yeah. And you're doing it without telling people that's what you're doing. Most mediators just stick this confidentiality agreement under people's noses at the time of the mediation. Don't explain the implications of things to people. I don't think it's fair to condition your service as a mediator on people waiving rights with the leg which le the legislature thinks they ought to have and not telling them that that's what you're doing. Right. The other thing that I think is absolutely unconscionable and immoral for people to do is to put a prospective waiver of liability into their so-called confidentiality agreement. Many people say in a mediation confidentiality agreement, the mediator shall have no liability for any act or omission in connection with this mediation. It's a cowardly act. If you were a lawyer, it would be a state bar matter. That's what I was just thinking. It makes if nice, you, were, if, you know. If you were a lawyer and put that into an engagement agreement uh, with your client, you better get ready for a call from the state bar. And my sense is that 
as mediators, we have malpractice insurance. We have insurance that covers us if we, if our conduct falls below the standard of care and harms somebody, we should be eager to make them whole as a matter of ethics and morality and not eager to prevent them from being made whole. So if you carry malpractice insurance and you put a liability waiver into your agreement to mediate, what you're in essence saying is that even though I carry malpractice insurance to protect me from financial ruin, if I should cause you some damage by conduct that below, falls below the standard of care, if my conduct does fall below the standard of care and cause you economic damage, it is personally important to me that you not be compensated for my misconduct. Yeah, that is what it says. That's exactly what it (laughs) says. That's exactly what it says. And how a mediator could put their head on the pillow and go to sleep at night knowing that they, the only one who benefits from that is their malpractice carrier to whom they've paid a premium and who gets to beat the check if the liability waiver is enforced. Makes no financial difference to the mediator. Well, that is definitely thought-provoking. So I think we've taken people through quite a journey in just 30 minutes here. So uh, I... I, Time flies, Susan. Doesn't it? Well, that's... You know, I just looked at the time and I said, oh my gosh, we're already at half an hour. But that is what I, I want the listeners to understand. These are concepts that I think really do fly in the face and just it, just to the status quo. I think we have all done things a certain way, as I just said. Somebody told me when I took my training that this is mm-hmm. what you put into your agreement and that's how you do it. I am a lawyer, but I didn't question that. And that's what you've done here, you and Teresa Frisbee, Tyler Codina. It's a, it's a really well thought out article. You know, when, when a mediators, when I'm talking to them and I mention this, and if they haven't seen it yet, I say, oh, let me send it to you. You know, let me know. Well, I get an, I, not one person has, has ignored it. They have all mm-hmm. responded back and said, oh, wow, I'm glad you sent that to me. This deserves some thought. This deserves a conversation. So bravo to you, Jeff, for Thank you, for Susan. Doing you know, this. The whole point is to elevate the field, to elevate the level of skill with which we practice, and to elevate the level of integrity with which we practice. Those are things that are very important to me personally. And if these articles help the field or profession of mediation practice, at higher levels of skill and integrity, then that makes me, that that's good. Well, that's I, good. I, I think you can check that box because it is, you have changed the way that I look at these, these, um, these two areas really for me. Um, you will change the way that I practice going forward as a mediator. I, and you've also just challenged me in a way of, I think it's always good for us all to realize that we need to challenge the status quo. We need to ask questions about why we do certain things and the way we do things. Um, this is this is one area, but I think that's a scrutiny that our lives 
can hold up to or should be held up to at, at times in our lives. So thank you very much. I want to make sure 30 minutes did go by very quickly. I want to make sure people can reach out to you with questions or uh, want to get in touch with you about your services. Yes, thank you. If people have a question, they deserve an answer. My email is my initials, JK at my name, jeffkitchhaven.com. And my cell phone number is area code 310-721-5785. If people have questions, I welcome those questions. And I thank you very much, Susan. This is a terrific interview. And as I said before, it's a, a real honor to be invited onto your very prestigious podcast. Thank you very oh, much. Thank you. You absolutely deserved it. And you're, you're elevating the show with, with um, your articles and, and with your thought. And, and I, I very much appreciate your taking the time to create this episode with me. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode of the Learn to Mediate Online podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, and if you liked this episode, please give me a five-star rating and tell me what you did like in a review. Join me each Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. to hear another episode, and be sure to subscribe now so you don't miss one. Send me your questions and comments at susan at learntomediateonline.com. And you can find out more about my trainings and programs at learntomediateonline.com. I'll see you next week.